this summer we've been going through the whole book and seeing what a joy it is to be able to be partakers of the gospel ministry together, standing side by side for God's sake. And uh, we see more and more the joy this morning of what that means. So turn to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. And um, as we go into this, the thought that we should start with is... um, Is there a time, are you in a time right now that Christ seems dim, the greatness of Christ seems dim, or is there a time, or will there be in the future, where Christ is not a great treasure to you, where he's not everything to you? I think we've all experienced those times, and Paul has something specific to say about that in this passage, to encourage us to look to Christ and find him all sufficient. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. I'll read the first 11 verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe to you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus And put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law blameless but whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Oh Lord, we ask for your help now. These are big thoughts. You are a big God. Christ is great and glorious. Show us more of Christ, we ask, and nothing more. We ask that he would be all to us, and that if we see anything in your word this morning, it would be Christ. We pray that you would carry us along by your spirit. Minister to us truly to our hearts. Lift them to a knowledge of Christ, to live for Christ, and to glorify him. We pray in his name. Amen. So Paul wants, and he wants for us, that we would find joy in something. All through this letter, he's been saying, here's where you find joy, Philippians. There's joy to be found in being partakers in the gospel. There's joy to be found in suffering if it's for the sake of Christ. 
there's joy to be found here in the Lord. That's verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul wants the Philippians to catch a fresh glimpse of the greatness of Christ, the Lord. Now we're going to find three things that are all connected to what it is to know Christ. And first here we find to know Christ is to find that there's no room for confidence in our own flesh. To know Christ means there's no room for confidence in my flesh. That's the first, uh, or the next four verses, verses 2 through 6. Verse 2 says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's saying there are people out there, and maybe in your midst, who would say that there's value in the things that you do in terms of how you feel before God. So are you doing things that you feel gain you something right before God? And he's saying, look out for those people. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. It's all the same group of people. And he's saying, these are people that would seek to impose on you Gentiles. These are Jews. Impose on you Gentiles some sort of outward conformity to Jewish law in order to feel like you have some sort of partaking in uh, God. So if you're going to be actual Christians, you Gentiles, you need to look like Jews, he says. And what he's getting at is circumcision, and that's what he gets at in the next verse. But what does he call them? They're mutilators of the flesh. They're seeking to impose on you the Jewish rite of circumcision, but at the same time, it's not gaining anything, so really all it's doing is cutting away the flesh, and it's leaving no good for the people that they're trying to impose it on. It's not having the intended effect. So it's just the opposite of what they're trying to do. These people are really in seeking to make the Gentiles clean according to Jewish law. They're actually the unclean. They're the dogs. They're the outcasts of societies. They're the mutilators of the flesh. Now... What does Paul have to say about this mutilation of the flesh? Verse 3, he says, no, we are already the circumcision. That's what he says. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, why why circumcision? This circumcision is a sign first given to Abraham of identifying God's people with himself. So they're saying that this is the outward sign that they're imposing on them to identify themselves with Jesus Christ. But Paul turns it on his head and he says, those who are circumcised are really uncircumcised. And those who are uncircumcised, if they're in Christ Jesus, are really circumcised. How is this? Because of the circumcision that God does by his Holy Spirit inside of us. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is what Moses calls the people to as well in Deuteronomy 10, 16. He says, if you're going to obey God, this is what God needs to do in you eventually. And it didn't come about until the new covenant. But he says, you need to circumcise your hearts. And this is what God does by his spirit. In Romans 2, 28, this is Paul recounting what God has done in fulfilling his promise of the circumcision of the heart, the new nature. In Romans 2, 28, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. You hear the themes of this passage. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Because praise is not from man, but from God. So, the one who is truly a Jew, that is truly one who is of God, is one who worships, that is, serves by the Spirit. One who lives by the Spirit. Now, what is it? If someone lives by the Spirit, what does their life look like? Because remember, our point here that we find is that knowing Christ means that there's no room for confidence in my own flesh. And that's where Paul goes. He says, if you're going to live by the Spirit, if you claim to be God's, then you will live according to the Spirit. That is, you will live in a way that finds its source in your new nature. And if you're going to do that, you will put all of your confidence in Christ Jesus, and you'll put none of your confidence in your own flesh. That's what he says in verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship the Spirit by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is really important to see. These are three pieces. If we say we serve by the Spirit of God, this will be a reality for us. We will boast in Jesus Christ, and we will not boast in the flesh. We'll boast in Christ alone, and we'll boast in nothing else. There's no room for Christ plus. There's no room for grace plus. For the Christian, the one who's walking by the Spirit, it's all Christ in terms of our boasting, or it's not Christ. Christ is going to compete for the allegiance of our hearts and it's going to be one way or the other so what is it to what does it look like if we're going to put confidence in the flesh if we were not going to do what paul says for us to do and we were actually going to put our confidence in the flesh it would look like this it would look like if we're males imposing circumcision on ourselves it would look like following the all the sabbaths all the festivals it would be focusing on observance of food laws and dietary restrictions. These are all things that Paul was battling with the Philippians and with other, uh, with other churches. But he says, these are things that are not gaining you anything before God. Now for us, what might those things be? It might be identifying with a particular denomination. It might be identifying with a particular type of schooling for the kids. It might be thinking a certain way about the coronavirus pandemic. It might be having particular political views. It might be, uh, I think this is maybe a little bit more of a problem in the U.S., identifying with a particular nation in terms of favor with God. But none of these things gain us anything before God. They're not really gain. They're not profit. Only Christ is. You can't have it both ways. That's what he's saying. Now, 
if we're not going to add to Christ and we're going to pursue finding all of our treasure in God's spirit, Paul does have something to say before we get there. And he says that if this is the game that we're going to play, and if we're going to say, there's some gain to be found in confidence in the flesh, then I'll play that and I'll show you what sort of futility is found at the end of it. So look at verses 4 through 6. This is Paul's attempt to make the point that there is no gain to be found in confidence in the flesh. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. How so? Seven things. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, I'm a true Israelite. I'm not just adopted, grafted into Israel. I can trace my ancestry back to the tribe of Saul. A Hebrew of Hebrews. And how is he a Hebrew of Hebrews? Three more things. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anyone looked at my life, he says, you couldn't find any fault with it. Now, was Paul saying that he was righteous, that he was actually blameless in the heart? He's not saying that because we know that he does not say that anywhere. In fact, he says that it was the law that showed him that he was not right in the heart. It was the law that showed him that he was covetous because the law said, do not covet. So what's his point? He's saying, if you looked at my life from the outside, you would find no reason to blame me for any sort of transgression against God's law. In in fact, you'd say everything in his life is gain before God. Everything about him is winning him points. And we can look at him and say, he is an upstanding Jew. But what does Paul say to all of this? He says that in knowing Christ, there is no room for confidence in the flesh. Now, why did Paul not maintain this confidence in the flesh when God saved him, when he met Christ? Why did he forsake all of that confidence that he had? That brings us to our second thing, that knowing Christ, Paul found is better than every other gain. Knowing Christ is better than every other gain. Verses 7 through 8. For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's now setting up a picture and he's saying, this is how I see how my life was and how my life is now. How my life was, was it was a profit and loss statement. And it had lines upon lines of things that I was born with and things that I accumulated through my life. I was an Israelite. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Then I was a Pharisee. I was a zealous persecutor of the church. I was blameless under the law. And all of these things, he has a positive value on the side side of of the statement and at the bottom it all adds up to Saul is a man of God and that's how he saw himself but what does Paul say to all that 
I saw Christ and everything that I considered gain on the profit and loss of my life was now a loss, was now a write-off, was now crossed out and not even worth including. It was worth zero. How are these things worth zero? These are... These are great things by all worldly standard, especially if you were a Jew and you looked at Paul's life. These are great things. How is it that Paul goes from saying, this is everything in my life, to this is worth nothing at all? Look at verse 8. He says the same thing a second time. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus My Lord, Paul says, when I saw Christ, there was no comparison. Now, this doesn't come from an intellectual knowledge of knowing Christ. He didn't say, I saw Christ, and I knew things about Christ, that he's better than the angels, and that he is the Son of God. I saw Christ, and I realized that Christ is worth everything just to know him. Just to have a relationship, to experience the greatness of Christ. That's what knowing Christ is here. It's a relational knowing. One of the church fathers said this, For when the sun has appeared, it is lost to sit by a candle. When the sun's appeared, it's lost to sit by a candle. How so? Because the loss comes by comparison, by the superiority of the other. The candle is great if it's illuminating the book, but the sun is so much more superior. And then listen how dear Christ is to Paul. Does he say simply that it's great to know Christ? Look at verse 8. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everywhere else, when Paul says these three words, Christ Jesus, Lord, he says things like, our Lord Jesus Christ. We hear that often. But here, he uniquely says, Christ Jesus, my Lord, the one who I know personally, the one who is my own. We sing these thoughts. When I survey the wondrous cross, On which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. When I see Jesus Christ in his greatness and the fact that he suffered and died for me in my place on the cross, everything that I once held dear now I count as loss. And then he says for a third time in the second half of verse 8, he says the same thing, but now it's even more emphatic. For his sake I've suffered the loss of All things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's not only this vague loss that he's considered all his gains. Now, this loss, he's put more in specifics, and he says, I count it as filth. What he's getting at with this word is he's saying, this is stuff that's only worth throwing out on the street for it to be collected by the dogs. That word has a connection with the words dog and the words passed out. 
So even more specifically than just filth or what we often hear as excrement or some sort of vulgarity, what Paul's probably getting at is he's saying, this stuff that was once dear to me, once gained to me, now is only worth throwing out and it's worth only being collected by the dogs. Who is that? It's the people that put some sort of value on those things. And who does he say those people are? Back in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for those people who put value on these sort of fleshly things. And if you're in the spirit, take all of those things that were once gained to you and cast them out on the street. And people that put value on those things can put value on those things. But if you're in Christ, there's no place for that with us. Because Christ is greater and Christ is more valuable. And did Paul do this begrudgingly? Did he say, when I saw Christ, Christ made me get rid of everything that I loved so much. He said, when I saw Christ, everything that I once considered gain, he says positively, I have suffered the loss of these things. I've suffered the loss of these things. He didn't lose anything, though. He gained everything. In losing everything that was once gained to him, he actually gained the only thing that was worth having in this life, which is Christ himself. So he did joyfully. God showed him that he could either boast in his living according to the Jewish Torah and how he felt about that in terms of his outward conformity, to the law, devoid of any work of God's spirit, devoid of any work of God's spirit, or he could have Christ. It was one or the other. Charles Spurgeon puts this point this way. He says, the Savior held the same place in Paul's esteem as the crown did in the esteem of the runner at the Olympic Games. To gain that crown, the competitor strained with every nerve and sinew feeling as though he were content to drop down dead at the goal in order to win it. If you have a child and they're playing with some sort of toy and they're having a great time and you bring along something that they love way more and they're drawn to that toy, is it hard to take that thing away from them, the previous thing that they took so much delight in? Well, if they find great joy, a superior joy in this new thing, It's nothing to take that away from them. In fact, it's all joy to receive the greater, and it's no loss to lose the lesser. And Paul's saying, that's how it was for me. It was no loss. Everything now that is loss is no loss to me because I've gained the only thing worth having, Christ himself. Now Paul transitions, and he continues his own story by saying, If I've gained Christ, this is what it's going to mean for me. And this is what it's going to mean for you as well, as one who walks in the Spirit. What does it mean? The third thing. Knowing Christ means living like Him. That's verses 9 to 11. If we know Christ, it means that our lives are going to be conformed to His life. Look at verse 9. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, that is to have Christ and Him to have me, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now Paul here 
as we saw earlier in the passage when he was talking about the righteousness under the law, he's not talking about justification. He's not talking about a right standing before God. He's saying that if you are in Christ, you will have a righteousness that is a right living that comes out of a new nature. So if you're one who is empowered by the Spirit and you've been circumcised from the heart, then you will live in a way that is righteous. Your living will be right before God and will be pleasing for God because the righteousness comes from God. Now, what's the motivation here? And what does it call us to? If we have this new ability in knowing God to be able to live rightly, what does that call us to? What are our lives going to look like? What does it mean that we're going to be conformed to the life of Christ? That I just said, that's what Paul gets to now. And he says that really what you're being called to is a resurrection-empowered living. Look at verse 10. That I may know him. He's picking up that knowing of Christ. That's the, that's the main point of what he's saying in this passage. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection... And so knowing the power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It might remind you of um, Philippians chapter 2 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Let me read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and listen how Jesus Christ has empowered us to live like this in a way that sacrifices self for others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here in a parallel way, Paul is saying that he is being called and we are being called to follow in Christ's steps. If Christ, God himself, was called by his own will to lay aside his divine privileges and take on the form of a servant, more than that, being born in the likeness of men, more than that, dying, more than that, dying the death on a cross. And if he, after that, was vindicated by God and given the name above every name and resurrected and he lives today, he's saying, if we are going to be ones who are conformed to the life of Christ, then our lives will be patterned after his. We are also to lay aside everything that was once gained to us, and we're to take up humble, selfless humility. We're supposed to take up selfless love, pouring out ourselves for others, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ, even if it means that we die, even if it means we die a martyr's death. And why? What's the motivation? Paul says it right at the beginning of uh, chapter 3, verse 10. 
the power of his resurrection. This is what we know when we know Christ. We know the power of his resurrection and knowing that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and lives still means that we, if we die, will be raised from the dead as well. His resurrection has become our resurrection. And though we don't see it yet, we know that as long as we live in this world, we can endure suffering, we can endure hardship, even if it means pouring out ourselves to the point of death, because we will be resurrected as Christ was to glory. That is hope. That is the hope that we have in the gospel to be able to live in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ. So he's not saying, look to Christ and realize that he's done everything that you can't do and just put your trust in everything that he's done and give up hope on pleasing God with everything else you do in your life. There's some truth to that, not the last part, but what he's saying more fully is look to Christ and look to the life that he's lived and realize that because Jesus Christ has lived that life, because he's died on our behalf, and because he's been raised from the dead, we now can live for him. We can now live in a way that pleases and honors him and pours out our lives for the sake of others. This is a wonderful thing. To live Christ-like is to follow in his footsteps, even if it means that we die. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of his glory in all the world, in all eternity. So knowing Christ means living like Christ. So we've seen three things. If we're to know Christ, which is what Paul hopes that we do here, this is what God wants us to find, is that knowing Christ is the most wonderful thing that we can ever experience. To know Christ first, it might be difficulty realizing that knowing Christ is meaning that there's no room for confidence in our own flesh. But more than that, in a wonderful way, knowing Christ, we find that everything else that was once gain in our lives is now lost. Why? Because Jesus Christ is better. And that knowing Christ means that our lives will be conformed to his likeness. And they can be conformed to his life by his spirit. Now a question that I'd ask all of us, and something that I've been wrestling with, I, th I think is very relevant. And it's, it's what is there in our own lives that would be competing for the supremacy of the worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remember the words of verse 8? I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The worth of knowing Christ surpasses everything in our lives. Everything that we hold dear, everything that gives us confidence in this life apart from Christ. Christ is better. Christ is more surpassing what is it in our lives that compete for that if God would have us have an undiminished view of the worth the supremacy of Jesus Christ what are the things in our lives that are competing I think one thing in this world in our western world is materialism it's gain and it's profit by worldly standard it's comfort in the things we have even if we don't think about it day by day what do we think when we think about the renovations that we've done in our house? What do we think when we think about the career 
that we've progressed in? How does it make us feel if it's depart, if it's departed from Christ, if it's divorced from his empowering spirit? Then it's something that's distracting from the supremacy of Jesus Christ in our lives. What are those things? And God would have us have an undiminished view of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our God, we pray that these things would be real for us. I feel that we have opened up a passage that is too big for our understanding. And that goes beyond what we can comprehend. What is it to know, Lord, that Jesus Christ surpasses all things in this life? Everything that we hold as gain apart from him. What is it to know Jesus Christ as our Lord, my Lord, my Savior, my friend, my dear companion? Lord, would Christ be all to us? Jesus Christ, would you be all supreme to us? Would you surpass everything in delights? Would your greatness be what diminishes the fleeting pleasures of this world? Oh Lord, we confess that we're so often entangled by the pleasures of this life. We're so often enamored by the glitter. But Lord, we know that you wouldn't have it this way. We know that if we're in the Spirit, and if we're living by the Spirit, and if you've given us new hearts, you don't desire to keep us in this place. You desire that Christ would be more and more day by day until fully and without a veil on our eyes would be the brightest glory that we have ever seen. We pray that you'd help us to this end and minister to us in uh, the coming hours and days. Jesus Christ, be all to us, and not for us only, but so that your love would be poured out through us to others for the sake of your gospel here in Barrie and extending out to all places that have never heard of you, that Jesus Christ, in his surpassing worth, would be known in all nations. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.